Welcome to Talk Racing to Me with Naomi, show 22. Recording on the 10th of September 2020. Boy, do I have some good guests for you yet again this week. Looking back on the Saratoga meet with perennial meat-topping trainer Todd Pletcher, seven-time Eclipse Award-winning champion trainer who this year secured his 14th Saratoga title. An outstanding achievement, characterized by the strength of his team and the incredible consistency and longevity of his career. So I feel very, very lucky that I get the chance to reflect upon this achievement with him. And my second guest is... Phasic Tipton sale representative and bloodstock agent Ramiro Restrepo, who gives us full disclosure on the recently concluded revamped selected yearling showcase. Stick around until the end as well as he dives into his former life as a club promoter and how he ended up starting Marquee Bloodstock. Now I thought of talking about the Kentucky Derby this week on my show. But by now, I mean, everyone has seen the race probably a gazillion times. We know what happened. And on the In The Money Media Network, we have covered it extensively. Authentic one for Bob Bafford and Johnny V with a very well-timed ride and a horse that was tuned to the nines. No excuses for Tis The Law, a horse that ran his heart out but didn't accelerate away from the field in the last 16 like we all expected him to and hoped him to do. I'm just very much looking forward to seeing him race next. Hopefully in the Preakness, that would really, really make the meet for me. But otherwise in the Breeders' Cup Classic, I'm assuming. Now, listen to the Nick Luck Daily episode with Bob Baffert, which is, I do believe, episode 49, which was very insightful and covered everything that happened on that day. I really enjoyed listening to that. And Matt Bernier also dissects the entire derby in detail on his weekly show. And of course, don't forget to tune in to the main flagship show and all the Woodbine content ahead of the Queen's Plate on Saturday. Now, without further ado, let's listen to the one and only Todd Pletcher. Hello, Naomi. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. How are you doing? Great. Well, first things first, congratulations with being the meat-leading title this year. Again, 14th title at Saratoga. Uh, Thank you very much. That was quite a race. It came down to the last day. You won it with 32 in total versus chat rounds 28. Of course, he won it the last two years. Does it still feel special for you? It's your 14th title. I mean, it's just an incredible achievement. Yeah, I tell you, I, I mean, they, they're all special. Um, I think the first one in 1998, I would consider to be you know, the most special and certainly the most surprising i thought uh but uh yeah i I felt like for the whole team that this one was uh this one was was really uh special and uh you know it's 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 a lot of fun when you see your staff and team team members get excited about uh you know a tight race like that and take a lot of pride in uh in the work they do so it's happy happy for the whole team to participate and enjoy that yeah what do you think it means for your team and during that last week can you sense that they were all you know anxiously keeping an eye on the scoreboard oh uh, without a doubt yeah they uh they're watching every race with great interest and uh you know keeping keeping tabs of well uh, you know what the scoreboard uh is showing so uh yeah it makes uh 
like it, it makes uh, makes the racing more, even more exciting than it already is. So uh, the only negative part of it was that uh, you know we didn't have the spectators and fans that are normally there. Yeah, absolutely. That's something that we've all missed. Uh, I know from personal experience that normally the fans lift you up and give you that kind of energy, and that was a little bit lacking this year, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean it, it's it's been uh, strange times for sure, and you know we're very thankful that we've been able to continue racing and and uh, we're able to conduct a, a Saratoga meet, which is so important to so many people. But uh, yeah, it's it's not the same without the fans there, and the, you know especially the Saratoga fans are some of the most enthusiastic and most knowledgeable in the world, and uh, you know so it was it was not the same without them. And you say, obviously, Saratoga meaning something. What does it mean to you to win that title here? And what does Saratoga mean to you? Well, it's it's just, you know, in my opinion, the best racing in the world. And, uh, and I learned early on when I first started w working for Wayne, Wayne and Jeff Lucas in 1989 that, that Saratoga is just, it, it means a little more to, to everyone. And, the, and that's the owners and the breeders and the trainers and the jockeys and, you know, everyone associated with the horses. And it's just, uh, it's always had a, a little, little more dynamic, special field than, than just about anywhere else you race. And, uh, so I've always felt that, uh, doing well there and, and having your horses perform well there is, is, is just, uh, really important. So we, uh, we're happy to, happy to be a part of it. Would you say it can be characterized as maybe one of the toughest meets in the United States because of the level of competition? Yeah, I, I think you could say that. Now, th this year might have been a little bit different because normally we have more horses from more more places. And, you know, I think some guys were unable to come from Kentucky that normally do and maybe from Maryland and Florida. But uh, the racing is still at the very, very top level. And, uh, you know, we, we saw that again this year. During that last week of the meet at Saratoga, did you start thinking you might have got this? What were the emotions like for you? Yeah, we, you know, to to be honest, going into the meet, before the meet started, we didn't really feel like we had a barn, a barn full of horses that were, were going to be ready enough to, to be able to compete for leading trainer. And uh, so we just sort of went about our business nor as we normally would. And, you know, like halfway through the meet, it's, seemed like we were having a good productive meet and we were sort of still in the hunt and you know, we started looking at the last couple of weeks I felt like we had we had some live chances and you know we needed <clears throat> needed some horses that had run early in the meet to come back around and run well in their second start and uh, we needed some of the two-year-olds to get ready because like a lot of barns we were a bit behind on the development of our two-year-olds because of the COVID delays but uh yeah, we, we, we felt like kind of, you know, going into the last couple of weeks that uh, we might be able to compete. And uh, so I made, I made it excitement and made it for more excitement and more exciting to, to you know, kind of go into the into the closing part of the meet with feeling like we had a chance to compete for that, that title. Well, it's interesting that you say going into this meet, you didn't feel like you had a stable, you know, up on the level enough to, to secure a title. What does it take what kind of ammunition do you need on sort of all different kind of levels 
to get the wins needed to secure the title? Well, I, th- I think that's exactly right. What you're saying is you need you need to be able to compete at all different levels. So you're going to need uh, you know your your maidens to perform well and your preliminary allowance horses to perform well and and hopefully win some stakes also and and uh, and then you need your two year olds to step up. So I mean, we're actually a little lighter on two year old winners than we probably would be in in a, in a lot of meets because of the the delay in getting some of them ready. But then we kind of had a nice balance of, of three three and four year olds who were able to to win some maidens in preliminary conditions, and then some horses step up in some stakes. And it just uh, it just sort of all gelled uh, kind of at the right time for us. Would you say that? reflecting upon you know the multiple decades that you've been leading trainer at Saratoga do you think it it gets easier because of the career that you've had because of all the experience that you gained in comparison to winning that first title in 1998 well I don't think the experience hurts but at the same time the most important thing is you have to have the quality of horses to do it and and, uh you know the staff to support you to to carry it through and uh yeah, it was when when someone pointed that out that uh, to me on on Monday that that was the fourth different decade that we had won a training title at Saratoga. First of all, it made me feel old, and uh, <laughs> second of all, it was uh, you know it was a it was a pretty cool accomplishment, and uh, so we're we're proud that we've been able to consistently uh, you know perform well at Saratoga. I think it means a lot to our our owner base and, and uh, they seem to get a lot of enjoyment out of it as well. That's quite something in the, in the fourth decade. And you tied with Angel Cordero as well, who won the title as a jockey 14 times. Did you have a chat with him about the significance? Do you chat about things like that? I've actually, uh, we, we, we kind of kidded each other about it for, for years, you know, when I was working for, for, for the, Wayne Lucas in, in 89 and Angel, I'm pretty sure it was one of the years that he'd won it and he was riding some horses for us. And, you know, I've always said that I think he is part of the reason why the trainer race and the jockey race and the owner standings all mean a little more at Saratoga than they do most other tracks. And it's because he always went there with intention of wanting to be leading jockey and, and, uh, so I think he, he kind of popularized that. And uh, I've always, I always kidded him that, I you know, my goal in life was to, to win 15 titles at Saratoga. I just wanted one more than him. But, um, you know, to, to be able to tie him, and it's, it's by no means, in my opinion, is it is as easy to win a jockey's title as a trainer's title. What he accomplished is, is I don't think will ever be ever be matched but uh you know it's kind of fun just uh being compared to him in some way well you're well on your way to that 15th title anyway well the one thing i've said is even though we've been fortunate enough to to win 14 i have a tremendous appreciation for for how difficult it is to to win any of them there and and uh so we're thankful and grateful that uh that we were able to do it this year and certainly wouldn't take for granted that uh, there'd ever be another one, but uh, we'll certainly come back and give it a try. Absolutely. You were talking before about some of your two-year-olds. You had a couple of made in special weight winners, uh, 
Mutasabek, I still don't know how to pronounce that. He ended up finishing third in the hopeful yet fifth risk and restored order. Any of your two-year-olds possibly moving on to compete in the Breeders' Cup? Well, we're hoping so. And, uh, you know, I think that uh, we'll give all of those another chance and some stakes. The one thing we, we might be thinking about with Mutasabek is he, he might end up being a little better on the turf. He's out of a scat daddy mare who, who performed on the turf. And while he, uh, he was very good in his debut, he's kind of had, had a little trouble keeping up the, you know, the fast pace they said in the, in the hopeful and the winner was very good and never really came back to the field at all. So we'll probably breeze him on the turf with the idea that he could be a horse for either the juvenile turf or, or even the juvenile turf sprint, depending on how he goes. And uh, restored order will probably make his next start in the Pilgrim, and and Fifth Risk will most likely make her next start in the in the Frisette. So, if they can continue to develop and step up, then hopefully, uh, you know, they can be onto the Breeders' Cup from there. Yeah, absolutely. I just remember that last year I chatted with you about who you were sending to the Breeders' Cup, and of course, you walked away from that meeting with. I don't know, possibly the biggest trophy of them all in the British Cup Classic with Vino Rosso, which was phenomenal. Uh, looking at another horse that did very well for you at the Saratoga meet, Holiday, who won the grade one four-star Dave. Uh, how is he doing and, and any thoughts of where he'll be heading next? He's doing great. He came out of the four-star Dave in, in really good form. And uh, right now we're we're planning most likely his next start to be in the Shadwell Turf Mile, which... Uh, sort of be good good spacing from his last race and also give him the opportunity to have a have a run over the over the track for possibly coming back in the Breeders' Cup mile. Awesome. Before we move away from the Saratoga theme, because I know that you're very busy, but I'd love for you to indulge the listeners by giving any recommendations because also you've been there multiple years on end. What are your favorite spots to get a coffee or even a restaurant? I know this is such a trivial question, but I do think you're probably quite an expert on this. No, I, I think, uh, you know, one of the good things about the meet this year was that, that uh, a lot of the places were, were able to, to remain open. And uh, so we probably didn't dine out as much as we would uh, in normal years, but uh, we end up at Prime a lot because it's uh, close to our house and uh, that's very convenient. And Sabello's is very good and 15 Church Street and, course for for more traditionalists the wishing well is is uh you know kind of a historic uh venue that's uh always uh solid and uh and then no bays if you're looking for italian so i i would say if you if you pulled a number of people you'd probably get a lot of the same answers from uh from everyone I do think the racing community likes to go to the same place because obviously they're quite good and moving back to the horsey side uh, lightly raced happy saver he won the federico tessio stakes uh, granting him an entry into the preakness on october 3rd how did he come out of that race and how do you think in terms of his experience you know has he gained something from that i think it was only his uh, third start it was only his third start and uh you know he's, he's been impressive so far it's not very often you see a horse able to win his debut maiden seven furlongs at Belmont, followed up by an allowance race going two turns a mile and an eighth against older horses at Saratoga in his second start. And then on to Laurel for his third start where, uh, you know, he stepped up and was able to win a stake. Um, so it's, it's, it's hard to do that. And, uh, 
think he's gained a bit of education and experience. He's still probably a bit behind in that category in terms of some of the horses that he would have to meet in the Preakness. But we feel like he's shown that ability level that uh, if he trains accordingly between now and then, that we'll, we'll very likely give him that opportunity. I'll be very excited to see him in Baltimore. I will be there myself as well. So uh, hoping that it turns out to be quite the race. And before I let you go, this will be my final question. Uh, do you have any other horses that are of interest going into the Breeders' Cup this year, aside from the horses you've already mentioned? Well, I think those are the main ones, and unless uh, we have some two-year-olds step up quickly, um, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't see the Vino Rosso Classic Classic horse there, and, and it's probably going to come up a bit, bit soon for for a horse like Happy Saver, even if he were to perform well in the in the Preakness. But uh, you know, we'll uh, we'll see how things go over the next next. Uh, Few months. There's a lot of lot of critical uh, preps for the for the Breeders' Cup, and especially with the two year olds, they can they can step up quickly, and that's what we're always hoping for. Todd, thank you so much for your time. It was a pleasure, like always. All right, Naomi. Thank you. Todd has made an appearance on the show a few times before, but he just doesn't get old listening to his insight. Now, cue my next guest. And friend, Romero Restrepo, Marky Bloodstock owner and Phasic Tipton, South Florida, Latin America representative. Make sure to tune in to the last question, as it's actually my favorite part of the entire interview with Romero telling us where the name of his company comes from and how he started by buying horses for his nightlife friends. So glad to have you with us today, Romero. You've been in Lexington, Kentucky all week. Do tell us, the sale just concluded. How has it gone so far? Well, um, I just got back to my hotel room a little while ago, and I haven't had a chance to fully look over the numbers, but, um, you know, it was uh, an interesting sale. To be, you know, to be the first uh, in anything is always, you know, unique and and provides its, its challenges. Um, you know, I think it's the first, obviously it's the first year that, uh, facing Tipton does a select sale in September in Kentucky. Um, the this the world that we're in right now is is we're going through unprecedented times. Uh, regardless on on what side you are on the issue of uh, the coronavirus, uh, what it's what it's done to um, you know all the industries across the world in 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 every respect, and uh, you know the change that it's done to to our sale. We've had to uh, move two sales, the New York bread and the select sale from Saratoga all the way on to Kentucky and then postpone the July sale, which is, you know, really strong with new sire showcase sale, you know, regularly down to September as well. So to combine the three sales together and, um, you know, showcase all those horses in, in one unique format um, is something unprecedented that we really, you know, I, I don't know uh, what expectations you know, the company had, but, um, you know, we, we, we ran it through. It was pretty awesome to see the, the amount of people that were on the, on the sales grounds. Um, you even had the Coomer contingent was able to come in from Ireland, which was great. Um, we had a Japanese, some Japanese buyers that came, you know, that came into town, which is, which is awesome to see. So, you know, everyone from Kentucky, uh, you know, pin hookers, 
from Florida. It was just great to see a good collection of buyers out there. Um, so there was a lot of activity, you know, from sun up to sundown. I mean, all the barns were busy showing, and it was just, you know, it was just great to see that type of activity. Kind of like a little bit of sense of, of, of you know, normalcy, right? Just everybody kind of back to their routine. Granted, we're wearing masks and bandanas and, you know, social distancing and stuff like that. But just getting back into a routine of things was refreshing. And I think it was something that everybody, you know, looked forward to. Well, you mentioned that you combine the three sales together or sort of combine them. Does that mean you had a sort of different amount of numbers? I saw that there were 662 yearlings that were sold. What are the numbers normally like of those individual sales? Was this a cumulative um, sale in terms of numbers or is it more like some people decided maybe not to sell because of everything that's going on? You know, when you're when you're changing the logistics of the sale, I'm sure there's going to be uh, people who traditionally sell in New York who may not, you know, ship all the way down to Kentucky due to, you know, the platform kind of changing the logistics of what they're comfortable with and, you know, what they're used to. So, um, you know, numerically speaking, it's those three sales combined bring a, I mean, individually bring a bigger number than the three of these combined. But, you know, having to move what we did and being able to assemble the catalog that we did. Uh, you're just kind of, you know, taking uh, what we could from from all three. You know, obviously our sales grounds have the capacity to hold more horses, as seen like in our October sale. But uh, this is what we were able to assemble, what we were able to recruit, and kind of, you know, uh, they, they were displaced from their usual homes and they were brought in for 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 this sale. So the, we we formatted it by putting the first 165 uh, horses of the sale were New York breads. Uh, to kind of, you know, get that sale going. Um, you know, Boyd Browning, our president, mentioned yesterday in the TDN, you know, he, which, you know, makes all the sense of the world. The New York bread sale is probably the most challenging one. Uh, it's it's held in such an amazing platform in Saratoga, in New York, where they're all going to be competing. Uh, all the trainers, all the owners are, are used to being at the racetrack and they walk right over. And then it's like, They've been at the races all day and they can now walk over and, and now buy some more horses. Uh, so that was probably the biggest challenges, you know, with travel and, and uh, you know, those, those types of restrictions and quarantine restrictions and asks to get the amount of, you know, New York-based New York uh, clientele to come down. But, you know, kudos to those that made it um, down here. And then we combined the, the July sale and the select sale all together and it was just done by you know alphabetical order uh catalog through there you know who were the top lots i saw that there were two million dollar lots uh tell us a little bit about them i know that you've had the chance to see the majority of horses on the sales ground right i mean it was uh it, it was it was pretty cool to have that whole uh, the whole spectrum of horses you had the you know the traditional big names like you know sons and daughters of medaglia and warfronts and spites downs and Tap its quality roads and and those big guns that you always see at Saratoga, and yet there was that feel of July where you had so many uh, freshman sires, the practical jokes and connects and gun runners and arrogates and American freedom. So it was just a cool uh, thing to you know to have been able to go you know go around and and see that whole hodgepodge of uh, of different physicals and stuff. I'm trying to think, Naomi, on the sales toppers, we had uh, the one point five million dollar uh, quality road filly from uh, Hillendale. Yeah, and she was amazing. I mean, that's that's one of those pedigrees 
that it's so hard to get into. You know, the the, the mare is a full sister to several uh, outstanding Coolmore horses. You know, to have that type of boutique collection was, you know, collector's item was amazing. So Joe Allen, I know, went pretty strong for that filly. She was, uh, you know, a spitting image of her sire. And then the American Pharaoh, oh, man, he was a beast. I actually took a Instagram uh, story of him coming out of the ring. Uh, he was actually bred by our vice president, Bain Welker, and sold with Denali. You know, he was a spitting, spitting image of his sire. You know, what's amazing is how these how the things in the sales world can happen is when all the, the cosmic forces align. You know, the half-sibling by Frosted, owned by OXO Equine and um, trained by Brad Cox, broke its mating at Churchill during Derby weekend in a savagely amazing, you know, fashion, was named the Tedian Rising Star. So, what a timely update that was. So, uh, th- those were two pretty serious pieces right there, for sure. Absolutely. And you mentioned a couple of those young stallions represented uh, the late Arrogate. How are his yearlings looking? Unfortunately, I haven't had the chance to see any of them yet. Right. I mean, you know, being down in Florida, uh, I'm on the customer like a client relation side recruiting horses uh that are on the racetrack and recruiting clients i'm not part of the inspection team so i hadn't seen uh any myself either so it was it was great to have you know that crack at it three days ago and start seeing the horses the arrogates are you know it's it's pretty remarkable he he stamps them in all shapes and colors so uh you know there's some horses that just stamp them like you know, a lot of the American pharaohs are these, you know, are just like him, you know, these brown typey, just like him. Uh, pharaohs brought you everything. You had big, small, tall, long, grown uh, chestnuts. You had, a, you had a little bit of everything. Uh, he had a super, uh, that I can just remember off the top of my head, he had a really impressive physical uh, that sold for 400000 I believe, to Breeze Easy uh, from the Hillendale consignment. And I remember I was just like in between barns and I looked over to my left and I see this thing and I'm like, somebody called the zoo. There's a there's a panther out on the loose, you know. He was just a big, beautiful colt, and um, it was you know, this strapping chestnut sold for a lot of, you know, sold for four hundred thousand. And then at the same time, you, know, you can go to another consignment and see like a, a gray or a roan looking just like him. So it was nice to see him get, you know, all types of, of shapes and sizes, but at the same time, get a feel for for some of the other babies that were out there. Who, who were you impressed with most? I, just uh, some of the list, Gunrunner, Practical Joke, Mastery, all these big names. I mean, who do you feel like is really standing out at the moment of obviously first crop? We, we know nothing yet. Right. I mean, you know, what's wild is like is like last year's first crop. I think there was like 12, 11 or 12 um, first sire all millionaire in earnings, which was like an all time high uh, to have 12 stallions hit the million dollar mark in earnings with their progeny. And then here we go. You have it's so wild to think that all these guys retired at the same time when you start seeing, you know, the potential that they had and the accomplishments that they did at the racetrack and then say, man, they all retired at once. And and now we're being overwhelmed by, you know, all their babies at the same time. And you know, you're like, in, in, you know, in, in past years, you might say, oh, you know, there's one or two standouts for sure. But then, you know, you start running through the list of these horses and you're like, man, grade one, like monster grade one winner after monster grade one winner. And here are their babies. So, um, like, just off the top of my head, like practical jokes, uh, gun runners, um, connects were really, really, were really, you know, for me, I was like, wow, man, there's some really, really nice connects. Uh, you know, but again, it, it, a lot of it, obviously, everything's in the eye of the beholder, you know, um, all these agents are out there 
you know, they're all artists in their own right and looking at these horses and what they feel. So I'm kind of just speaking from, from my perspective, but, you know, the masteries, there was a Lord Nelson that sold really well at the end of the sale for four star that, I mean, was Lord Nelson Jr. I mean, it was painted just like him that spent and sold through four star. Um, even, you know, uh, sires like American Freedom and uh, Classic Empire Mastery. I mean, it was just, um, it was nice to see the athleticism and the class that they exude. Obviously, it's a select sale. So, you know, we were bringing, um, you know, consigners were bringing their best of, 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 you know, of their crops. And everybody gave a really nice account of themselves. Well, but hold on. You're a bloodstock agent yourself. And we're going to get on this topic a little bit later. Marquee bloodstock agency. Who do you like most? Because I know you're saying, oh, they're all great, but you <laughs> you must have some preference. If you were going to buy one, and I know that you bought a yearling, maybe even more, I have to double check this. So we're going to chat with you about your selection later, but come on, you have to give me an opinion here. <laughs> <laughs> look, uh, I didn't I, I didn't get to buy one. Um, look, I, I, I'm, I 95% of the horses that I buy at the yearling sales are to pin hook into the two-year-old um, into the two-year-old sales. So I have to be wary of my purchase price because obviously we want to turn a profit next year. And um, I have a couple of bullets in my in my musket. You know, I don't, I don't have a, a machine gun where I can take a lot of chances and spend, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars on one particular yearling, you know. Um, so I really have to narrow things down to, you know, to a specific type so that I can, uh, you know, turn a profit. Um, I've, I, you know, personally, I have this, this sense that I love a connect or a practical joke. Um, you know, the way the, the raciness, the speed, um, and the, uh, and the class that those two have, uh, are something that I personally would love to have. So, you know, hopefully, um, you know, that could get accomplished this yearling season. But, um, you know, the gun runners and the, um, the arrogates and the practical jokes at this sale, you know, if you just look at the sales results, you know, they sold really well. But when you're, when you, you know, when you go to a sale like this at Select and everybody's bringing their best, obviously it's so hard to, you know, to sit there and just come, you know, I can look at all these horses and say, gosh, if I run the Powerball, <laughs> heck, I'd be buying, you know, a buy. So, um, I did buy two yearlings at the sale. Um, my new sire, that my freshman sire yearling purchase that I made was an American Freedom uh, Colt at, a, at the Airdrie uh, consignment. He, uh, he has two siblings that are, uh, one's a main and special weight winner and one's an allowance winner. So I think there might be some nice timely updates uh, from here to there. And, you know, he had, you know, long scopey uh, walk and, you know, showed that athleticism in his presence when he was being shown. Um, it's just a horse that you think that between now and, you know, six months from now, seven months from now, he'll be a grown man, you know, f you know, fully filled out and, um, you know, hoping for the best there, of course, Mother Nature to stick on my side and maybe get some updates. And then I bought a Curlin Cole uh, from the Glen Hill Farm consignment, which, you know, I'm over the moon that it fell into my lap. Um, he was a, um, he's at a mutually benefit, who's a stakes uh, winning, excuse me, stakes producing um, mare. So my Colts half sister is a grade two placed, a warfront filly 
that raced for uh, Glen Hill Farm and the dam, she's a half-sister to Malibu Moon <laughs> and a half-sister to the dam of Temple City. So, like, to have that fall on my lap and, you know, he vetted amazing, you know, super clean and, and you know, just a hearty, uh, like like most Corlins are, hearty, hearty, strong bone and, and athletic, man. For that to fall into my lap was amazing. So I went a little, with a little bit of old school and new school at, at, on my two purchases. So they both will be pinhooked into the two-year-old sales next year then? Right. Um, they're both going with my partner, Joe Pickerel, uh, from Pickview. Um, he's a consigner down in uh, Ocala. He, he's my partner on you know 95% of my horses. So uh, Joe and I... Uh, you know, we're really happy with the purchases and we're going to give it a give it a ride in the spring. And would you say that if you have to characterize the market right now, that it's a, a tiny bit of a buyer's market because of everything that's going on? I mean, you just have to, I mean, it, it, the common sense says that, you know, a, a lot of businesses, a lot of industries, a lot of things were, were affected um, by all the stoppage. You know, obviously you'd love to see the full contingent of international buyers here. Um, and I'm sure at the European sales, they're wishing for, you know, the same thing. Um, I think we're just at a moment in time where there's so much unknown. You really have to let this entire yearling season play out uh, before you can say this is what's going on. You know, um, you, it's, you can't jump to crazy conclusions here or there. Uh, especially when the first sale of the year, of the, the yearling calendar, is a sale that's never been done before. So it's not like you can simply say, oh, you know, how did Saratoga go and compare it to previous Saratogas? We're not comparing the sale to anything. You know, it was nice to see, I think, you know, the, the numbers dictate that the action on the second day of, the, of this two-day sale, there was a lot more, um, you know, spent on horses. So that was nice to see. Um, you know, the median was up, average was up for day two. So, uh, you know, obviously I think starting off with the New York breads, which is a unique thing where they sell on the island it served almost as an appetizer to where that the sale was going to begin and it started gaining momentum and this second day you know you had that that other million dollar horse the american pharaoh and you know you saw higher six-figure priced horses you know coming in consistently so you could see the engine you know the engine on the market warming up and and, and gearing up and you know people buying strong and you saw you know the, the names on the on the uh, buyers list representing you know, the, the big operations and, you know, you saw pin hookers getting in the mix and, you know, you, you saw why, and you saw the international buyers as well. So, you know, you saw everybody, get, you know, getting in the mix and, and starting to buy horses and trade was rolling and it ended up being a successful sale. So, you know, um, but I think everybody needs to just wait till the year is up. You know, we got an, another sale coming up. We have October coming around and, uh, and then you have our Atlantic sale as well. And, you know, just let the market play out and, and see what's cooking. I mean, look, uh, regardless of, of, of what sales company is putting on a sale, you know, in the end, you know, the industry is the industry. The breeders are the breeders. And, you know, we want everybody to do well because it's what keeps this, this wheel rolling, you know. So uh, everybody's trying to come together to facilitate whether it's the entry to the sales and, you know, the management of, of how the sales are being executed. To the, to the best. I mean, imagine if we didn't have a sales right now. I mean, how many people would be, you know, with horses with, with having to find a, a home to, to race? And, you know, there are breeders out there, small and large, who would be left with all this inventory and, 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 and having to change their, their, you know, their dynamic. 
So I'm glad we have an outlet. Most importantly, I'm glad the sale was put together and I'm, and I'm glad those that, you know, stuck with, with everything through these times, you know, brought their 600 plus horses to the sale and, and, and those that, um, you know, that had a really nice quality product, they were rewarded. And, um, you know, there's, you know, hopefully the whole world gets better. We keep on rocking and, 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 you know, we get back to normal next year in terms of the sales calendar and everything else and, and hope for the best. I mean, I mean, it's, it's wild times, you know, I mean, I wish I could say it was all good and gravy and, you know, <laughs> no big deal, you know, operating like business as usual, but you know, it's challenging times and we're just doing our best. Well, that's the question on everybody's lips. Conservatively speaking, how are we looking going into these big yearling sales that are about to roll around? The first yearling sale of, of every year that traditionally is the most select sale is Saratoga. So we had a component of that, of that sale uh, at this particular select sale, right? Uh, Saratoga horses, horses that were aimed for Saratoga, they showed up at the sale and they sold really well. So it's, you know, that perceived quality of, of select, you know, that, that top level horse, regardless of where you're being sold, you were getting rewarded handsomely. So I think that, you know, that, that concept of superior quality and and uh, strong pedigrees and strong physicals you know you're going to be rewarded i think what's you know what's what's all you know the, the common theme for the last few years has been you know that market right below it you know the the middle market and the lower market so it's interesting to see you know a lot of international buyers not from the bigger countries but whether it's south america the caribbean and not your, you know, not your just your traditional Japan and, and and England and France and Ireland, you know, like um, where they come in and they'll buy a lot of the lower to middle lower, and they help with clearance. You know, Koreans, Mexicans, Dominicans, Panamanians, uh, Puerto Rico, and they come and they buy a lot of horses, and they help with clearance rate for that bottom and middle. You know, how are their countries affected? How are the travel restrictions with their countries? Um, you know, are they going to be able to make it? How's racing in those industries? Some of those racetracks are still closed, so are they still coming to look for inventory? I mean, those are those are questions that you know are are the real things that that that, that we're curious to see what's going to happen because you know the, the the top the top the top market like if you have something that is bred well and looks great and 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 has that perceived quality. You're gonna you're, you're gonna be you know there, there's a home for you you know what I mean you're gonna have a nice you know, you're coming home to to roost in a nice place you know and everyone's gonna win all the way around it's you know the lower and middle markets that you know those buyers that are or you know they're your, they're your the grinders they're your bread and butters they're the guys that you know that that support a lot of quantity you know are they gonna be coming over are they gonna be you know buying you know so that's what to me is more interesting you know is is that larger percentage because perceived quality is a certain amount of horses but there's obviously always going to be more middle and lower than upper so how's the clearance rate going to be at those sales um excuse me for those horses at the sales and you know that's something that that, that we will we, sh we shall have to see on those countries that you mentioned they're also sort of the part that you specialize in at Phasic Tips and your client relations, this is what you do. Can you tell us a little bit more about how normally they do come over? Because I personally actually don't know that much about the buying bench of those 
perhaps uh, lesser racing countries. I wouldn't say lesser, but countries that aren't as well known across the globe in terms of their, you know, the top quality racing, like the USA, England, France, uh, Australia, Hong Kong. Those are sort of smaller countries that still actually play an important role by the sounds of it. No, a a thousand percent. You know, like uh, some of the European countries, obviously, they have had races that have been around forever and a day. So whether it's Royal Ascot or the Ark and, you know, Champions Day and et cetera, you know, that prestige and that, you know, that, um, you know, the, the purse money for those races and the prestige of those races and the history behind those races give those markets, you know, that the, 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 the spotlight per se. But, you know, there are countries in those in those other markets where the purse money is much less. Now, while as the individuals who live there may have the financial capacity to buy millions and millions of dollars worth of horses, it doesn't make financial sense to buy a half a million dollar horse, three hundred thousand dollars, a million dollar horse, and then go run for you know the U.S. in dollars, the U.S. equivalent of just a couple hundred dollars or a couple thousand dollars. It just, it just, it's apples and oranges, you know. Um, and whether the language barrier, you know, the language and the cultural barriers kind of prevent those races from being shown mainstream and us in western countries you know like well northern hemisphere countries excuse me will, will you know won't have an idea that, oh you know this race in mexico or this race in panama or this race in, in in another country has been around for a very long time it's just it's something that we're that doesn't come across our plate so we don't kind of acknowledge it as as being of of, of, of a certain level but tradition it, it's there but you know I, I think what captures our attention is you know, the big purses, the big sponsorship races, and um, that gives that perceived level of what we call higher and lower, you know. But um, working with those guys at FASIC, for us, you know, they'll, they'll come, like, our October sale, um, the, the buyers from the Caribbean will come in and just eat up that catalog and buy, you know, a couple hundred horses, which is amazing to see. Um, and that's something that, you know, we've been keeping, I've been keeping in touch and keeping tabs with guys in Puerto Rico and Panama. And, you know, they've been heavily affected by, you know, the coronavirus, the shutdowns. There's also a hurricane out there that, you know, caused some natural disaster um, um, damages to the racetracks. And, um, you know, it remains to be seen, you know, are they going to be coming to the other um, fall sales and purchasing on later on in their in their catalogs are they going to be coming to the October sale and, you know, you know, purchasing that, are they in the position to, are they, are they, first of all, are they healthy? Are they in good mind and good spirits? Is there, you know, how's their economy doing? How's their health doing? And, you know, once the human part is out of the way, that element is their industry up and running, you know, how's that going? And if it is running, are they going to be able to come over here? You know, what are the restrictions like uh, coming in and, and, and that? So, you know, time time will tell. You know, that's all we can do is you know give our support, our mental, emotional support, and and hope that you know things are up and running in time for that. Yeah, I think we're all very much hoping for that, indeed. And uh, let's move on to what you do, sort of on the side, or what's also your business, uh, Marky Bloodstock. So you basically you represent a sales company as well as being on the Bloodstock side. So you kind of. Um, get the experience of both worlds. You know what's going on in the sales industry, but you're also representing clients as a buyer, as an advisor. When did you set up shop? Oh, 
you know, I've never, I never really set up shop. It's so crazy. Um, you know, in 2007, I went and, and, and got a call from my uncle and he was like, Hey, do you want to look, I, I've been around it my whole life. I, I, you know, I've, 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 I've talked about it before. And some of my friends who, who have, uh, <laughs> read or seen a, an interview here or there on me get nauseous of me telling the story but you know I've, I've been around it for a very long time i come i'm a fifth generation horseman but you know not in the most uh high or lower right the glamorous of of um of success you know i don't come from a family of grade one winners or a family of you know hall of fame or eclipse award winning but uh you know they their dedication to it you know what the horses gave us um is something that's universal i guess at all levels and uh the amount of time that my family is dedicated to being around the animal for generations uh, is something so special so it's something that's been within me my whole life uh personally speaking my obsession with horse racing is second to no other sport so when I had the ability to, in the, in the financial world, to dabble into buying racehorses, my uncle and I got together at the end of 2007 and bought my first racehorse. And going with him to, to a sale the following year, I was able to buy a two-year-old for, you know, what would be in our industry, really entry-level monetary amount. And just through the relationships that I had in my previous, you know, life from my previous professional I met a lot of people that are now my close friends from different backgrounds, different walks of life, and none of them come from horse racing. So I was like, hey, guys, let's buy some racehorses and, you know, go out and compete. There was no such thing as, you know, pin hooking or we're going to make it into some type of, a, you know, uh, a business plan about it. It was like, let's buy a racehorse and have some fun. So going out there with a lot of natural uh, muscle memory of seeing racehorses combined with little tips that my uncles and grandpa have shown me and told me I went out and started buying racehorses but for my buddies and what's wild is you know, you start buying with a with a budget of 15 25,000 and then those things go on in at my local tracks of Calder what form was Calder and Gulfstream Park West and Gulfstream they start winning races so you're like, holy cow, like, this is, you know, this is even more fun. And um, I had a buddy of mine who gave me an, you know, my, an opportunity to buy him, you know, a more expensive racehorse. And um, I bought a filly from the first crop of Cantharos for $85,000. That responsibility was four times of what I had ever had the chance to spend. My heart was in my throat. Because I'm like, this is not my money. This is someone else's money. The ability that I have to buy a guy, a, a buddy of mine, a racehorse for this, you know, he's giving you a hundred grand budget and you have to, you know, you're given the keys to this car and say, roll with it. The nerves of bidding and knowing that I'm bidding against somebody and then winning it. When they brought me that ticket to sign it over my head, I was shaking like I was like a seizure. It was the most nerve wracking experience even though I felt comfortable with what I was buying, I'm just talking about the human aspect of like, you know, the responsibility, a B that pressure moment that you're on stage, AKA buying a racehorse and the things, you know, the auctioneers going off and the numbers are racing and you're like, Oh my God, I'm getting to my, my magic number that I can't spend over. 
and then to land her for 85,000 was the first crop of cantharos. He was standing in Florida for like five grand, uh, a Florida bread filly, so a Stone Street bread filly. And, you know, I sent her to uh, Bill and Jean Riccio in Ocala. And I remember I got a call from Bill Riccio, who he also broke Honor Code and Songbird. So lived with Abel in Ocala. They had all the experience in the world. And I remember Bill Riccio, the father, Gene is running and now the son. Bill calls me and he says, you know, Ramiro, that, that, that filly you bought kind of caught my eye. You know, she's she's forward. And I think you might have something there. And I was like, oh, my God. Are you serious? Are you serious? I'm like, holy shit! I think I bought something that that I, you know that that it's kind of like you start feeling good when a guy with that type of experience tells you you're okay. So long story short, we sent her down to Ralph Nix at Gulfstream Park. She starts training, and we put her in a in a four and a half furlong race, and Naomi she wins by nine. So you start getting calls for private offers, and your mind starts you know going to crazy places and. She ended up going to Saratoga to run in a grade two and unfortunately fell to her face at the start. She just outbroke her own feet and finished fifth. But, you know, she came back to the uh, stakes place. And unfortunately, as tragic as it is, she was in a stakes race at Gulfstream and uh, Rosario was up and she was making a savage move from last to first. And right when she hit the, the front two leaders and she was going on by in the stakes, the, the first two guys clipped heels over oh broke my God. shoulder and passed and passed right on the track. So talk about the highs and lows of this business. You know, um, it's not for the weak of heart, but in having Ken, her name was Ken do in having Ken do have some success that gives me you confidence to say, man, whatever the hell it is that I'm doing, whatever force, whatever feeling I'm having, when I'm looking at these horses, there's something there, you know, and then with the help um, of, you know, I would, you know, what I would say is the accessibility of the horsemen at Basic Tipton from the late Bill Graves and the late Dennis Lynch to Peter Penny and Bane Welker, um, who are monster horsemen, in my opinion. Um, I, you know, I would occasionally pick their to, you know, have an idea of, you know, they've seen so many horses. They've bought amazing horses. They've sold amazing horses. So, you know, I'd love to see what, you know, what, what, uh, you know, what they saw. I akin a bloodstock agent to any artist, you know, uh, except our art is finally proven on the racetrack. If they win, you're a good bloodstock agent. If you buy a lot and they don't win, so we finally get called out at the end of the day because there's a finish line, you know, or if you're, if your MO is to pin hook, are you having success when you're pin hooking them the next year? And then the biggest reward is if they go on and race, obviously, you know, because in the end, that's what everybody's here for. The end user's here to win and you want to have the reputation of being someone who selects winners. So we're all artists out there looking at this canvas of racehorses trying to pick out what's the most you know what's the most appealing horse to oneself and the proof ends up being in the pudding you know so i've never officially said like ramiro restrep was open for business it's very organic um well you are now ding dong ramiro is open for business <laughs> <laughs> you know it's, it's been very organic and it's just been something um that's kind of 
you know, grown um, over the last, you know, four or five years where you've, you know, been able to buy one, then you buy two. And then, um, you know, three years ago, four years ago, I was introduced to Joe Pickerel um, through Susan Montaigne of SBM Sales. She's, you know, a, a proven successful, you know, pin hooker, has had tons of grade one graduates. Um, her partner, Andrew, Andy Pickerel, um, and partner in real life and in professional life. Um, his brother is Joe Pickerel. And um, they introduced me to Joe. And I had a filly uh, by the name of Violent Times, who I had bought at a face excel for $41,000. And they were like, hey, you know, if you're going to break her, you know, to go to the races, well, how about you, you know, you meet my, my brother-in-law, per se, Joe Pickerel, and um, have him go to the process. So with Joe, he handled her fantastic. He, he prepared her so well for the races. And, you know, she's gone on to earn now almost 300000 and she finally won a, a listed stake, which was really cool to see. And and um, we've had so much fun with her, with her career. My relationship with Joe just kept growing every year. And then um, three seasons ago, we kind of, I, I was able to raise a little bit of, of, of more capital. And with Joe, we went out and bought, you know, a bunch of yearlings and pin up them. And then, um, you know, two years ago, we had our, our in our second year of, of working together, even though, you know, he, he, pin, he pin, pin hooks his horses, um, the majority of which, the, the majority of, of my horses are with Joe, are, are, are partnered up with Joe in, in the sense that he will be a financial partner of mine. Um, and then there's other horses where I may own the horse entirely, but Joe still puts them through the process. And then, of course, you know, two years ago, we had our big kind of like something that puts your name on, on the map. You know, you go out there. Uh, we went and, and bought a horse from a first crop sire in Palace Malice. Um, he was probably one of the more expensive Palace Malice yearlings of his first crop, $160,000. And the horse comes out and wins, you know, wins first time out at Saratoga, wins the Pilgrim at Belmont, and then shit, wins the Breeders' Cup, you know, juvenile turf undefeated and we're out there and you know everyone from Jeff Drown and Don Rachel who owned the horse to Mike Ryan who bought him to Chad Brown obviously were so welcoming with us and they let us go to the barns and we had paddock passes and we were in the winter circle with them and you know they they, they let us hang out with them in the champagne room at, at Santa Anita you know toasting to the race so you know I'm a firm believer that in every horse when it has success everybody wins from the breeder to the guy who groomed it as a as a baby, all the way to the top, man. I mean, when a horse goes on and wins, if you were a part of that horse's life, at some chapter, it's the best. So, you know, structure was a was a huge thing. And then um, this past two year old season, um, the main graduate that we've had so far in this young two year old season, we had a Garoppolo. He was a maiden special weight winner at um, at Belmont, and then he ran fourth in the Saratoga Special. So that was pretty cool. And um, I have a, a really nice two-year-old who's been training really well with Brad Cox. He's a frosted, that Clay Share who uh, bought She Dares the Devil, uh, that won the Oaks. Clay bought this two-year-old uh, called that at uh, in Ocala, and he's training really well for for Brad. So hold on, what's his name? He's by Frosted. I absolutely love Frosted. What is this called called? Oh man! So the owner is the same owner as She Dares the Devil, Stanton Flurry, uh, Flurry, and uh, they named the the called Cryo. C-Y-R-O, like cryogenic, cryo, 
cryo-frosted cold. So it's a really cool name. The cold flame is cryo. He's a half to a grade one winner, Dustin Diamonds. She was, um, excuse me, grade two winner, grade one place, second in the Breeders' Cup, uh, Philly and Mare Sprint. So big page, big pedigree. And um, we had a good pin hook. I bought him for 80000 sold him for 185 You know, we had a really good, like, 80% ROI this past season in, in pin hooking. And, you know, here we are in this uni climate kind of, you know, dabbling at it again and and looking for winners. You know, I, uh, look, I, I there are certain factors that helps your horse bring the most money at the two-year-old sales. But in the end, the most gratifying thing that you look for is you want to buy a, a horse that goes on and wins at the racetrack, you know, because it's the, I know it's more of a longer game, but we're out there trying to find not only horses that are going to be profitable for next for next year, but horses are going to go on and have success on the racetrack and and um, and kind of you know keep keep giving your your team that reputation that we produce you know good horses. So um, here we are, man. It's wide for sure. But all in all, you know, my job with Basic Tipton, um, it's the opportunity that professionally um, helped opened the door to my being able to be in this business full time. Um, you know, my, uh, my gratitude towards the treatment and knowledge and, and open arms welcome that this company has given me for the last, we're going on six years come November is invaluable and has been unbelievable. Uh, with them, you know, the focus of my job is, you know, rec recruiting clients, client relationships, um, and obviously the recruiting of it, you know, race horses, broodmare prospects for our mixed sales and, uh, and, and all our sales really. But I mean, you know, you're, you're recruiting these horses to come to be sold. So I, I still have my job, my people person job. And I've been, um, you know, dabbling in this other stuff and, and little by little, you know, making some, making some noise. Well, dabbling quite nicely and for the listeners that don't know sort of what you kind of said that we're looking for a racehorse and not a sales horse which is kind of a term that it's a bit inside you know inside terminology here that you know you can have a horse that looks amazing at the sales has an incredible pedigree but you want them to go out on the racetrack and translate that to performance now you lifted the view a little bit on your uh, past life as you called it what did you do before you got into racing? And you're talking about some of your buddies being your clients, uh, all walks of life. Uh, can you give us a, a little bit of insight there? Sure. Well, look, just to clarify on the racehorse sales horse, that's not necessarily a term that we know prior to it happening, but it ends up being what it is. I don't just want to buy a horse that's going to breeze fast, make me a lot of money, and then not have you know, a perform performance on the racetrack after yeah. the fact. I just don't, I, I want, like, whether it's, you know, my, my biggest, you know, what runs through my mind is I want to buy a racehorse. Obviously, you know, money makes the world go round. It, 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 it's, it, it's the gasoline in your, in your engine. So, of course, you do want to make a profit. But, you know, I want to, like, my focus when I'm looking at racehorses is, is this a horse that's going to, you know, go to the track and win a bunch of races? You know, that's that's what our, our thought process is. So that if we don't sell it um, and we, we keep it or it has a, a physical setback that it can't make the two-year-old two sales, that we have a horse with talent and ability that's going to go on and have success, whether for myself or for the people who ended up buying the horse. And they'll always say, man, you know, Ramiro and Joe, that program, they churn out good horses. 
and 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 that's what that's what I meant when regarding sailing and 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 um and racehorses the differences of, of those two I guess terms um man you know I, I um I was late I was a late bloomer and uh my sophomore year in college I met the Bob Baffert of nightlife and entertainment promoters slash nightclub managers of Miami. Uh, we met through, we met on school at campus and we just got along really well. To this day, if you go to Las Vegas, Los Angeles, Manhattan, Sydney, Australia, I believe Hong Kong as well, he has some of the most famous nightclubs, restaurants, and lounges in all those cities that are full of A-list celebrities, A-list stars, athletes, models, you name it. And one of his clubs is called Marquee. And it's in Manhattan and it's in Sydney. So as a shout out, I named my bloodstock company Marquee Bloodstock after after his his uh one of his nightclubs. Um this is like a little a little tip of my hat to my life. So I started out like a groom per se, aka a promoter passing out flyers in 1990. It can't be, it's been that long. In 1998, you know, 1997, 1998, for these guys and working my way up to different roles to where I became, you know, not only a Bob Baffert, but I ended up being a, you know, uh, a, an owner of venues as well. So I, I ran through that nightlife gamut where I started out in a great place and when I went out on my own, I partnered with a lot of guys that were, you know, very successful. And I've been very lucky to have been around these types of events and parties and whether it's music festivals, fashion shows, swim weeks, uh, fashion weeks, uh, Super Bowl parties. And, you know, Miami's a uh, South Beach. It's got its reputation. It's it's a, you know, obviously pre-COVID, it's been a, a party town, a tourist destination. And... Um, you know, I worked in, I never worked like behind the bar or, or serving cocktails or anything like that. It was all shaking hands and kissing babies, you know, for the club. And in Miami, whether you were a Forbes Fortune 500 guy, whether you were an athlete, whether you were a celebrity, whether you were a supermodel, whether you were a gangster, whether you were a drug dealer, whether you were a nine to five office worker, everyone wanted to have fun and came out to venues. You know, like if, if you see the Studio 54 Netflix documentary, one of the coolest things where you have like Mick Jagger here and you have like a bank teller there and they were dancing on the same dance floor. The venues that I that I worked at had a great mix of people from all walks of life in a really eclectic environment where you had a lot of high profile people and people from all walks of life. So it was it was it was great to have learned at a very young age to manage all types of personalities. You know, I've met Axl Rose of Guns N' Roses. I've met Puffy. I've met tons of hip-hop artists. I've met basketball players. I mean, you meet so many people, models, playmates. I mean, the list goes. So I guess not that it makes you better than anyone, but you definitely learn what makes people tick, whether you're a bad guy, a good guy, a nice guy, a famous guy. Or a pretty guy, you know, men and women, you know, so it's helped a lot when you're meeting people here in our business and 
your social thermometer kind of, you know, has a good radar. And um, that education from 13 years in nightlife has helped me a lot in my new career now. So when I started getting into horse racing, you know, I leaned on my friends from the nightlife world, a couple of them, to just get rolling. And it wasn't anything crazy as far as a numerical investment, but the idea of, hey, let's buy a racehorse, you know, I think that's one of the challenges that our sport in this country has is that it's not like saying, let's go buy a football team or a soccer team or a baseball team, which is such a, which are huge mainstream sports. You know, uh, people might be familiar like of a Kentucky Derby, but, you know, we don't have that mainstream thing. So to convince a couple of my buddies from the nightlife world to say, hey, we're going to buy a racehorse, was like, what? And you got like double and triple takes. So they were the first people who, who helped uh, start my, you know, my, my, my horse racing buying career. But Bill Belford of Bell Racing, uh, he was introduced to me through mutual uh, nightlife friends. And, but, but Bill was not in nightlife, but uh, he, he was introduced to me to the, through them. He was the one who gave me my first big break to buy my first expensive horse for 85000 which is still kind of mo- modest on the larger scale, right? But for me, big budget. And because of Bill, through a nightlife collection, I got my first, I guess, break in the business. So that's, uh, <laughs> that's my little nightlife summary there. I love that. Nightlife friends buying racehorses. I think on that high note, we are going to conclude our little chat, Ramiro. It was really cool. I didn't even know Marquis Bloodstock was named after a famous Manhattan club. So I think we've all learned something here today. Thank you so much. For sure, Naomi. Thank you for having me. It was cool. And, you know, you're awesome. And I know you're, you're my buddy off camera and on. Such an enjoyable conversation with Ramiro. I feel so fortunate to be surrounded by wonderful connections and I feel very lucky to count Ramiro as one of my friends. And that's it for this week, guys. Thanks to Todd Pletcher and Ramiro Strepper for literally making this show. And of course, the entire In The Money media team for their continued support. Catch you all again in this space next week. And do reach out to me if you like the show or know of a good guest to get on. I'm always open to suggestions. And if you miss me in the meantime, I will be back on the Laurel Park feed as of this Saturday. Tune in. <laughs>